Well, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be here and serve you all. Um, I've brought with me, my name is Jazz, like Joel said. Um, I've brought with me my wife, Brianna, who helps lead worship in our church, and um, our great friend, Andy, who has been a mentor and encourager to me the last few years that I've gotten to know and love the word of the Lord and um, even better teaching of the word of the Lord. So thank you guys so much. Thank you, Joel and um, Becca. Yes. All right. Thank you, Joel and Becca, for reminding us, helping us declare the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. It's really easy to forget that in a week. Um, So when we get to gather and be reminded of that by people like Joel and Becca, um, that's a huge deal. And we serve on a worship team, so we know how much work goes into that. Um, so I don't want that to go unnoticed. Sometimes all the hard work happens behind the scenes. And um, so I want to thank them for, for doing that for us this morning. Like I said, we're from Connection Church. Our church has been around for about five years. Um, it's a church plant. We're on the east side of town um, in a strip mall. So this is awesome. Like There's a ceiling way up there. And we're kind of in this like strip mall office area that we've made in, you know, workable and we love it there. So um, this is much different and I've never preached from a sweet pulpit like this. It's usually a music stand. So, so this, is, this is much cooler um, of an experience for me. Um, thank you for being so hospitable. Lots of muffins uh, that we noticed out there. So that was, I didn't have one because I would be coughing during this, but maybe if there's some left later, I will enjoy a muffin as well. So um, I'm excited, and I just want to thank you guys. Our church has been praying for you guys. I want, to know, want you to know that our church loves you guys, and in any way that we can, uh, we're hoping to give Joel and Becca um, a break from helping lead you guys and just let them enjoy and worship with you guys and kind of sending some musicians even um, to come help you guys lead worship. And so that's just a way that I want you guys to know that we love you and we're for you and we've been praying for you. There's, there's tons of people in our church praying for you on a daily basis. So um, I don't want that to go unsaid. You guys are in our prayers and we love you and we want to help and serve you in any way that we can. So um, thank you for letting me be here. Thank you for the hospitality. And I've met um, a couple of people and nothing but nice things to say about them already. So um, thank you for that. With all that being said, um, I've come here with a purpose. God, I think, ordained this. I don't think I'm here because um, I was asked to be here by some person, but I think I was asked to be here by God himself and in his spirit. And I think he's put something on my heart to share with you guys. So if you would join me in Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible or any way to get to a Bible, um, there may be some around you. Um, But either way, whatever way you get there, don't be afraid of the table of contents. Um, God does this really cool thing through his word that whether this is the first time you open the Bible or if this is the thousandth or if you've been opening the Bible faithfully every day of your life, he will meet you there. He will be there and he's going to meet us in his word and he's going to teach us something about ourselves and who God is through it. So Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. The Bible split up into two um, chunks. One is the Old Testament. 
The other is the New Testament. And if you find your way to Matthew, it's about three quarters of the way into your Bible. We will be in Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to be in verses 13 through 23. So if you would pray with me as I prepare to read and teach this. God, help me now as I teach your word and read your word. Help me not to insert my own opinions, but help me to communicate your will, your purpose for your people through your word. I can't do this without your help, so transform us through it. Let it not be something that we approach to get smarter, but let it be something that we approach to have you reveal who we are in light of who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give you a little bit of context. We're in the book of Matthew. Um, I did see on the website that you guys have been learning about Matthew the last few weeks, correct? Give me a good nod. All right. So we're in the book of Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. He used to be a tax collector. He's a Jew. And he wrote the book of Matthew, this gospel, mainly to show the fulfillment of Jesus as the Messiah from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is pointing to this Messiah, pointing to this guy who's going to come and do something that we can't imagine and that we need because what we deserve is actually hell. And he's saying the Old Testament has been pointing to this guy. He's going to come and save us from our sin. He's going to defeat death, destroy it. And Matthew is like, watch how this has been happening. So Matthew wrote this book mainly to show the fulfillment of the Old Testament as Jesus is the Messiah. And we are in the middle of the book of Matthew in chapter 16. And this is where the disciples are seeing Jesus' identity clearest for the first time. Jesus, in very explicit terms, is about to tell them what he's going to do on the cross. So I want us to read. We're going to read Verses 13 through 20, we're going to stop, and I'm going to intentionally go really fast through that part. I'm going to give you a recap of this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples that's going to set us up, set the stage for verses 21 through 23. So we're going to read it, and I'm going to go through it rather quickly, telling you the story of what's going on here, and hopefully that sets the stage really well for where we will camp out the rest of our time together. So verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples, to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
So in this particular passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples and they're in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place formerly known as Paneus. Paneus coming from the pagan god of nature, Pan. And this is a place where people came for centuries to worship gods, idols, kingdoms, you name it. And this is where people came to do that. And this is where Jesus is having this conversation. I think it already reveals a couple of things. Uh, Caesar also lived in Caesarea Philippi. So this reveals a couple of things about this conversation already. Um, It teaches us that Jesus' kingdom is greater than Caesar's. It also tells us that Jesus is superior to any of the gods, idols, and kingdoms that have been worshipped here for centuries. Jesus' kingdom is greater than Caesar's. Jesus is superior to any other gods and idols and kingdoms that have been worshipped here for centuries. So we see Jesus bring them around this place and he asks them a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. These guesses don't seem like terrible guesses, right? Prophets are great. John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived, according to Jesus himself. These are terrifyingly bad guesses. They're taking Jesus and putting him right up there with everyone else. You can't look at a shelf full of books by other people and throw Jesus right in there with them. Jesus is something completely different. He doesn't fit into those categories. So these people don't know who Jesus is. Then he goes one step further and he says, but who do you say that I am? And how we answer this is important. Peter, who's quick to spout his opinion and uh, react, I think I can relate to Peter, actually says something profound. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter makes this profound statement about who Jesus is, and then Jesus blesses Peter. And then he tells him where it came from. God revealed this to you. This doesn't come from you. This comes from somewhere else. In the New Testament later, it says that we can't say that Jesus is Lord except from the, with the Holy Spirit. This isn't coming from Peter. So, he goes on. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you. This came from God. Praise him. Thank him for this gift he's given you. And then he says, I'm going to build my church and it will not stand against the gates of hell. It won't bring it down. I love this. So in this dialogue, they're standing in front of a big rock wall. And um, this was called the rock of the gods. So all these gods and kingdoms and, um, and things were carved into this giant rock. And people would come here. Um, they believe that this is where the God of nature would actually come out if he were to. So there's like a puddle. Uh, that's what I call it. I think it's like a, like a spring. And this is where they believed this, this God was going to come out of eventually. Um, but there was other gods, kingdoms, you name it, carved all around this rock. And it was called the rock of gods. Jesus calls it the gates of hell. 
Isn't that great? He already says something about this place that's not what they think. So Jesus is going to build his church, and even the enemy, whose main goal is to destroy the church, is not going to stand against it. For some of you, that's the encouragement that you need. But for others, I know this church is currently without a pastor. And when I say that Jesus is going to build his church, it could be discouraging. How? When? Friends, we may not know how or by what means. I wish there was somewhere we could get that information. God is faithful to his promise. We just sang a little bit ago. He's not going to withdraw his hand from what he's doing. We don't know how, by what means, but he says he's going to build his church. And my prayer is that this would be encouraging to us. That we would hear it and simply praise him because it's not on us. He says he's going to build it. So Jesus is standing in front of this rock saying, when all of these kingdoms and gods, you name it, when they're gone, they've come and gone, they're a footnote in a dusty history book, the church will be left standing. Over all that. That's good news, isn't it? So this sets us up for verses 21 through 23. Peter makes his grand confession, profession and confession of who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the one, the only, the Savior who's going to come and take away the sins of the world. And Peter says, yes, blessed are you. I'm going to build a church. So in verses 21 through 23, we're going to see a couple of things that I hope that we get out of this this morning. One, what does it mean to be the Messiah? This thing that Jesus professed of or Peter professed of who Jesus is, what does it actually mean to be that? The son of the living God, the Messiah. What else needs to be true? Also, we're going to see, how do we respond? Where can we place our hope in light of who Jesus is and what he's done? So let's pick up, we're starting in verse 21. Um, I know I ran through most of that text quickly, Um, But I hope that this will set the stage really well for what we'll talk about the remainder of our time together. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Let's take a look at verse 21 first. Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go. Um, A couple of things here. Jesus began to show them. This could be encouraging to us. Um, This means that the disciples will need to be told again and again and again. 
and again. So on Tuesday, when you forget completely who Jesus was and that he told you through Matthew 16 a couple of days ago, he'll remind you again. God loves to remind us of his son Jesus. Then he says that he must go. This is different than if I were to say something like, I must go to my in-laws for lunch after worship this morning. Um, It's not the same. It's something different. This word must is a Greek word, dei, D-E-I. And it literally translates to of divine necessity. Jesus says, I must go to the cross. And this isn't something up for debate. So Jesus is saying, there's something going on here and God ordained it to be this way and I have to go. Go where? For what? He continues. And suffer many things from the scribes, the chief priests, and the Pharisees and be killed. Right off the bat, we can assume based on the dialogue that we just talked about before this, that this must have been shocking to hear Jesus say directly after he just confirmed Peter's confession. You're right, Peter. I am the son of the living God. I am the one who's come to take away the sins of the world. But the scribes and chief priests and Pharisees They're going to get me. So this had to be unthinkable to them. But this shouldn't be a surprise, right? The Old Testament talks about a suffering king that's coming. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me or just listen to me read it. But Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, in great detail, tells us about a suffering king. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. You hear the words of the cross there? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds will be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Or Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. Talking about mocking, screaming at Jesus. I'm poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, 
and they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So in great detail, the Old Testament is pointing to a suffering king. So this shouldn't be surprising to a Jew like Peter, who should know this. But let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to here. We could probably resonate with the disciples. It'd be like if the president said, to carry out my purposes as president, first, I must be assassinated. That would probably catch you off guard a little bit. But this is what exactly what the disciples are probably experiencing. To be king, to be the Messiah, to be the son of God, the guy that you just said I was, the one, I have to die. And not only would that be surprising, but Jesus has been silencing the Pharisees left and right up to this point. He's been checkmating them. The whole book of Matthew before this, if you read the other gospels, how he treats and silences the Pharisees. They're saying, you told a dead girl she wasn't allowed to be dead anymore. You told a storm to stop and it listened to you. It's just like, think of all the things probably going on through Peter's head when Jesus says, I have to be killed. So the disciples were shocked. I think I would have been too. Here's the part they missed completely. You might ask, why, do they, why would they miss this? They always miss this. Jesus is walking with them. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to be raised. He tries to tell them in parables. This is what it's going to look like. He says, on the third day, I'll be raised. Notice quick here that be raised like be killed are both in the passive. So when Jesus says, I'm going to be killed, he's not saying I'm going to go commit suicide. He's going to be put in the hands of people that are going to kill him. So when he says be raised, he's saying I'm placing my life in the hands of the Father. God's going to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raise Jesus from the dead. And the, the disciples missed it. Be killed had such a gravitational pull that they missed the glorious hope of the resurrection. They missed it because watch out what happens next. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Having been confirmed in his belief that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter can't believe what he just heard King Jesus say. He rebukes Jesus. The word rebuke here is the same word used when Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea in Matthew chapter 8. Or if you flip forward to chapter 17, Jesus rebukes a demon. Peter, in the strongest possible tells strongest possible terms tells Jesus that he's crazy. That's what he does. 
Imagine that. Peter, or Jesus, Jesus. Come here. Are you crazy? This isn't going to happen, is it? Far be it from you. Before we think Peter's just always getting himself in a pickle, that you're glad, and we're glad that we're not like Peter. I think we are. We do this all the time. Jesus says something, and we go, Jesus, you didn't mean that, did you? So my wife and I have been, we met when we were in high school, high school sweethearts. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary this month, and um, we dated for a while, and we got engaged, and we met Pastor Jonathan, the pastor of our church, and we eventually asked him to officiate our wedding, um, and he told us we had to do what's called premarital counseling. You guys probably know all about that. At that point, I was like, what's, what's that? Why do I, can you just, can we just do it? And I remember sitting in, in Pastor Jonathan's dining room in premarital counseling, and he said something to me that was profoundly spirit-led. And he said, this marriage will not work if Jesus isn't at the center. And up to this point, if you talk to me, I'll tell you my story, but I'm a high achiever. So I was like, what do you mean? I'm awesome. I've, I've got this. And so we left, and I was confused, angry, and I was rebuking Jesus, saying, what do you mean? What do you mean I can't do this? You don't know. Surely you're mistaking. Can you hear the words of Peter? What is it for you? Where are you saying, Jesus, I know better than you? Is it what you do with your finances? Maybe a relationship, a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, kids, family, friends. Jesus, you can't tell me how to treat those people, raise my kids. Is it where you want to be at your job? Maybe God stuck you in a desk with a headset and you don't want to be there. There's no way out, it seems. Is it where you live? What area of your life are you saying, Jesus, I know better than you? And maybe you're thinking, well, I would never say that. Sure. But our lives will reflect it, will it not? How do you respond to difficult circumstances? If we're not careful, you may respond, far be it from me, Lord. This shall never happen to me. You hear the words of Peter? Surely this isn't what you want for me. Have you thought that? When you can't pay the bills? When there's conflict in your family? Conflict in your other relationships? You keep getting denied that promotion? This is terrible, Jesus. I don't want to be here. This can't be what you have for me. So even though we may not say, Jesus, I know better than you, as soon as we come in contact with hardships and conflict, let's be careful that we don't respond in a way 
that assumes we know better than Jesus. See, while Peter would say Jesus is Lord, he thinks he knows better than Jesus. He treats him like someone who just has it wrong. Someone who needs help. Some sort of fallen king who needs help up. Maybe he's just depressed. Jesus, he might, he might come back. He'll, he'll come to his wits. You see, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that the crucifixion is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And that there's power and wisdom in the cross. It's too much to expect Peter to understand this before he actually sees the resurrected Christ. So let's level with Peter here. Let's let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Take a look at Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. That seems harsh. For you are not setting your things on the mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So let's unpack this for just a minute. If you look back at chapter four, where Jesus is tempted by the enemy, by Satan. Satan's like, no man, take the, take the easy road. The road with no suffering, the road with no cross at the end of it, no pain. I'll give you the world. And Jesus says to Satan, be gone, Satan. That's the same thing he's saying to Peter. The same tone. Jesus looked right through Peter to the author of the statement of denying the cross, Satan. And avoiding death and suffering and addressed Satan himself. Jesus looked right through Peter at the author of the statement of denying the cross and denying suffering and taking the easy road. And he addressed Satan directly. Romans, or then he says, so he's saying, Peter, get behind me. Go back to being my disciple. Satan, be gone. And he says, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Romans 5 tells us that our, when we set our minds on the flesh, that is the human ways, the natural human ways, it leads to death. So what prompted Peter to make such a selfish rebuke? Jesus tells him, you've set your mind on the things of man and not the things of our Lord. That's going to lead to spiritual death. The things of God are different than you think, Peter. Jesus will always defy our expectations. What's the way to life? Death. If you look down at verses 24 and 25, I know we didn't read this, but I will now. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever saves his life will lose it. Listen, you hear Peter going, no, no, save your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Ray Ortland, a pastor, puts it this way and I couldn't put it in better terms and I love it. It says, 
talking about this. When we start to think we know better than Jesus, he will say to us, get behind me. You're being controlled by mere human likes and dislikes. You're forgetting that life comes through death, gain through loss, joy through pain, honor through humility. If you want to follow me, I welcome you, but you have to pick up your cross again, the one you just threw away. Peter has become a spiritual hindrance by pointing Jesus away from the cross. I think this informs the way we ought to view discipleship. What does it mean to make disciples? In verse 21, Jesus disciples the 12 to the cross and to his resurrection. We should do the same. In verse 21, Jesus points his disciples to the cross and to his resurrection. The good news, the gospel. We should make our discipleship relationships look the same way. We call this gospel fluency. That is the gospel, the glorious good news that God sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't and die the death that we deserve and be resurrected three days later. So that now, if we put our hope in this, God looks at us and says, righteous, spotless, mine. This is what discipleship should look like. This is the gospel and this is the language that should permeate our churches, is it not? When someone's having a bad day, what we want to do is say, here's five ways you can make your day better, which might last until they can't do the third one or forget. But no, look at what Jesus has done point them to the cross and the resurrection. Jesus disciples the 12 to the good news. And I think that we should do the same. So if you're here and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'm really glad you're here. Maybe your friend drug you here, or maybe um, you've been thinking this, like my way isn't working. The way that I think this thing should be isn't working. And You've stumbled in here, and I don't think that's an accident. Or maybe you would call yourself a Christian, and that you have been for a really, really long time. And maybe just rebuke Jesus left and right your whole life. And maybe you're here, and you're thinking, maybe I don't know better than Jesus. I'm really glad you're here. Whatever it may be, I invite you to repent with me. Let's turn away from our lack of trust in Jesus, who knows better. He knows what's best for us. He knows everything we've ever done. Let's not miss what Peter missed, though. This ends in a resurrection. Jesus, the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, who has the power to obliterate us, yes, us, like Peter, that rebuke Jesus and deny the cross. Instead of giving us what we deserved, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. So that we know that death does not get the last word. Guilt does not get the last word. Shame does not get the last word. Jesus does. Satan doesn't get the last word. 
Jesus does. His victory over these things is different than we think. He's not a king who sends out his army out in the front to die for his political causes. He's a king who goes in front of his army and dies for his people. He knows better. Let's pray. God, thank you for the glorious good news of Jesus and his death and resurrection. We confess that it's hard to believe and we often forget about the necessity of the cross and we forget the resurrection that comes three days later. Remind us of this. We are so prone to forget and set our sights on the things of this world. If there are people in here who are hurting, confused, lost, in need of guidance, comfort them. Comfort them now with the truth of who you are, what you've done on their behalf so that their eyes would be open to the gift of life that you offer us in your death and resurrection. Amen.